Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome, everyone, back to the 34 Circe Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here, as always, with... Don Sam Alden. Boy, it's been a while. It's good to get back in the saddle here. Yeah, we're going to get back big time because we are today initiating a new series called The War Against the Goddess. And who better to guide us on this journey tell us the story then the matriarchal inspirer herself vicky noble hi vicky hi so nice to be back oh so great to hear your voice vicky it is actually yes, i've been missing you guys <laughs> well we got plenty to talk about you had sent this began with an email that vicky had sent uh to me and some something that was written in the email based on the work she's been doing, the research work she's been doing. So Vicki, why don't you introduce the listener to what this is about? So this is called War Against the Goddess, this series. And we're going to talk about how people uh, in the contemporary world, academic world are approaching or looking at the concept of matriarchal history. So Vicki, take it away, please. Okay, sure. I think uh, if you can bear with me, I'll give you a little, uh, little pith uh, history of the of what's gone down and what's led to this really uh, active moment in the war against the goddess. It's been going on for a while, but it's really turning into something substantial at this point. And so I, I think it's worth talking about. Um, many of the people who have listened to us, I suppose, have already been introduced to Maria Gimbutas. She was kind of mm-hmm. our uh, heroic, <clears throat> groundbreaking archaeologist of the 70s and 80s who, who really put the goddess on the map. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, the, way, the way she did that, I mean, really, we, we have to go way back because for a hundred years or so, uh, maybe more, um, there had been a whole body of really interesting, fascinating work on the goddess and goddess cultures around the world and <clears throat> and so on. And uh, some of the names may be familiar, maybe not. You can check them out if you haven't done so before. Um, Bachofen, you know, talked about mother right, Mutterricht, uh Briefolt, three volumes, The Mothers. These are like Victorian contributions. They were mm-hmm. incredible. They Could were, you, Vicki, say what specifically it is about the goddess or about these cultures? I mean, in other words, uh, were they writing about a matriarchy, which I'm just going to we talk about all the time, of course. Were they talking about the history of how cultures were structured and whether they were female-centric? Just a very, very quick yeah, they were definitely uh, using the word matriarchy, which is sort of what the war against the goddess has <clears throat> has gone against. You know, this is what uh, the archaeological establishment has really 
dug its heels in and said, that's just not right, and, and we're going to do away with it. And it's true that the, the books were eth- ethnographic. They were anthropological writers. They were prehistorians. You know, they were, they were not archaeologists for the most part. Um, Eric Neumann was maybe the last one that people might have heard of in the 1930s, I think. He wrote a book called The Great Mother. Um, all of these were kind of globalizing the, the, the cult of the mother goddess, you might say, the worldwide cult of the mother goddess. And they were proving it with all of this evidence, all of these examples from around the world that supported matriarchy and matrilineal descent and the, uh, the rule of women in some cases. So that went on for such a long time. And then there were some modern uh, women who got into it. Jane Harrison, people probably know her name. Um, Elizabeth Gould Davis, who wrote a book called The First Sex in 1970, I think that book came out. Um, mm-hmm. And they were, they were doing the same thing and using all of those earlier writers as their supports, as their resources, but really talking about the figure of the great mother, the, the great goddess. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, someone that I've talked about on here before is Alexander Marshak. And uh, he's a more modern, more contemporary 20th century scholar. And he He's the one who did the microscopic research on the uh, lunar menstrual calendar bones that were found mm. way back when, you know, 30, 40,000 years ago. Um, so I love his work, you know, because it's excellent in that way, the microscopic work. But also he, he has sort of constructed a whole concept of what was going on and what those calendar bones were part of. And he talked about something that I've mentioned here before, the storied tradition. And Mm. this storied tradition, you know, was a kind of oral history and a visual history that was built around the concept of a matrix figure or a central ancestral female that came to be regarded as the goddess. Um, so that all that work, you know, it's just so much good work went on and they didn't have the archeological dating correct all the time. And, uh, it was, it was Maria Gimbutas who then had access to carbon 14 dating that was able to, uh, make more precise dates for the figurines and the pottery and the and the sites and the graves and all of those things, you know, by using carbon. Um, so she she was very helpful to all of us because she really grounded the chronology. We really got to see uh, the Neolithic, the agricultural period of several mm-hmm. thousand years, and then the Bronze Age and, and so on. She sorted it out with her carbon dating. So would it be fair to say then what Gambutas and these earlier uh, historians and researchers had maintained is that they saw evidence in their opinion of early civilizations, prehistory that were centered around the goddess, 
the great mother around women. Would that be fair to say? That's fair to say. Good, okay. good synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so before Gimbutas did her own excavations, um, uh, the Mellart, James Mellart, had excavated in Turkey, had excavated Shadal Huyuk, and, which is now quite a famous site in Turkey mm-hmm. from about the 7th millennium BCE, very early. Um, and, and he, you know, his books are just full of the, the great goddess. And he saw it everywhere, uh, just, just as Gimbutas did. And I think they saw it everywhere because it is everywhere. Everywhere right. you go, everywhere you look. If you look at what came before patriarchy, if you look at before 5,000 years ago in the, in the archaeology, in the artwork, in uh, uh, some, of the, some of the later, more classical uh, written works, like Robert Graves, for example, who wrote a two-volume set called The Greek Myths, and he, um, he deconstructed the Greek myths in a way that was very interesting, where he, he would have uh, footnotes to all of the verses, uh, and, and he told us the, the actual history. And he really talked about the, the transition from matriarchy to patriarchy and how we could see it in the histories. So people like that, you know, had been writing for a long time. After we after we talked last time, I bought a copy of that, and it, Don and I both that we were talking about his intro where he does he describes that kind of transition as yeah. he saw it from the great mother and the central worship. We'll have to maybe we'll figure a, an episode where we can focus on that and read that because I think that might actually be something great. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, that'd be fun. Right. Um, so that's a kind of a <laughs> thumbprint. Uh, history of what went before Gimbutas and where she was coming from. And of course, I've talked about her background, that she was born and raised in Lithuania and spent every summer. She lived in uh, Vilnius with her uh, parents who were both doctors, Uh, but she spent the summers in the country, in the countryside with the peasant people. And so she she changed the course of archaeology. She became a, a very renowned archaeologist uh, when she grew up and went to college and wrote her thesis and her dissertation. And then she came to America and worked uh, briefly at Harvard and then ended up at UCLA. And that's where she spent the bulk of her adult life. Uh, and she invented a whole discipline was, I don't know if she invented it, actually, that's probably wrong, but she utilized it and, uh, and set up a department on archaeomythology. And so her, her thing was to be very interdisciplinary. She, Mm. she was, uh, you know, she reconstructed the, the old Europe uh, civilization before the Indo-Europeans came in and changed it. And Can you just, uh, for that, let's, when and we've talked a lot about it on other podcasts, but just maybe a quick summary for anyone new. What's Old <laughs> Europe and who are the Indo-Europeans? Well, Old Europe is uh, the word, the phrase she coined for that, for the Danube culture, the cultures that, the Neolithic cultures that grew up along the Danube um, in in the 6th, 
sixth millennium, fifth millennium, and um, it, they were. It was a very highly evolved culture. We have a bunch of podcasts we've talked about old Europe. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's Central and Eastern Europe, right? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And even finally, uh, I don't know if it would really be part of old Europe, but I think so. Up into the Ukraine, even, and you know, in the later part in the toward the end but anyway um her her special skill and her special approach it was that she was so interdisciplinary she used linguistics she used history she used mythology she used religion she used archaeology i mean she was a an excellent archaeologist who did her own digs and uh she especially used uh material from settlements and from cemeteries and and she put together this incredible uh approach this incredible interpretation of of what she saw i'll give you a little example mm-hmm. she she wrote things like this this is from her 1989 beautiful book the language of the goddess <clears throat> she's she says the main theme of goddess symbolism is the mystery of birth and death and the renewal of life, not only human, but all life on earth and indeed in the whole cosmos. Symbols and images cluster around the parthenogenic self-generating goddess and her basic functions as giver of life, wielder of death, and as regenerate, regeneratrix. Uh, and and the symbolic system, she says, represents cyclical, not linear time. Right, right, and, yeah. And so that, she called the goddess the source incarnate. Mm. You know, and it was just such a beautiful thing, her, her approach and how she, how she managed to communicate it in her several books on the goddess. She didn't start writing books on the goddess until she did her first dig. Uh, which was uh, Achilleon in uh, Macedonia, Greece. <clears throat> and, and she saw all the female figurines, hundreds, thousands of female figurines, hundreds from that site alone. And they were kind of being ignored. And she realized, having done decades of Bronze Age archaeology, she told me once it was weapons, weapons, weapons. Mm-hmm. But she was really good at it, you know, and had really done, had, was a very renowned archaeologist already. But she she shifted gears and uh, went in a different direction when she realized that the earlier strata was a different culture, a completely different cultural approach to life, and that it was female-centered and not male-dominated, and that it didn't have any weapons and uh, and that it was made of, you know, beautiful art and that they were a culture of beautiful ritual and so on. Mm. So so with that, we have the old Europe, which is this earlier uh, 6th millennium BC, goddess-centric, expend, um, extending from Central Europe through the Ukraine eventually, uh, lots of female figurines in the archaeological record, etc., what about just to again put a little uh, fine point at it? What about this culture that comes later, 
which is the Indo-European, which is the weapons, weapons, weapons one. Can you tell the listener a little bit about them, just the difference between the two? Yeah, well, there's they're like night and day. The Indo-European culture grew up uh, and emerged uh, north of the Black Sea on the steppes, and they were uh, they were uh, oh, what do you call that? They, they were herders, you know. They were not settled and did not practice agriculture. Um, and they were male dominated. We don't know how they got that way or for how long they were that way. But they, in, in about 4500 BCE, in the middle of the fifth millennium, they got attracted to the goddess cultures, the goddess civilization. And you have to think in terms of like Bulgaria, Romania, uh, Serbia, uh, the old Yugoslavia, you know, you have to think of that area along the Danube as being just this premier civilization uh, that was egalitarian and uh, very artistic, highly evolved and and female centered. And that was her her basic premise. And and um, you know, the language of the goddess, I mean it's it's the most incredible, compendium of objects made of clay from our ancient farming ancestors. It's incredible. And she saw uh, a coherent patterned whole. Uh, and, uh, and so what happened is the right away her work was, there was a great protest against her work in the archaeological establishment. And she uh, held her ground when, for as long as she was alive and really was bothered by it, but hardly. You know, she knew she was right. She knew she, and, and her, her uh, systems of, of uh, research were just so broad. about that listeners we had some technical difficulties but we have worked it all out and we are back when last last we left our heroine vicky noble she was talking about how maria gambutas was not well received with her new theories by the primarily uh, male archaeological establishment so vicky if you want to pick it up from there that would be wonderful okay great Well, um, I think part of uh, the problem, well, there were so many problems that the establishment had with what Gimbutas was doing, because she went so far outside of the lines, so far away from the doctrines of prehistory and the earlier archaeology. So part of what was happening with her, what I've always felt about Gimbutas is that she had such a scope, she had such a big brain, and she was absolutely interdisciplinary in a way that at the time was not uh, part of the standard archaeological approach. There's mostly been a kind of specialization right, that, yeah. that means that, you know, each archaeology person is focused in an area or a particular, you know, the pottery or something like that. She was, uh, she was interdisciplinary using linguistics, using historical 
mythological, religious, uh, comparative religions. Mm. Um, gosh, she was languages and oh yeah, she she yeah. spoke and read uh, in she read at least in about eighteen different languages, so she could wow. read in primary sources and. And, you know, she grew up in Lithuania, so much of her knowledge was really earth-based. And from her summers in, uh, in the countryside, she lived in Vilnius, the capital, but she spent summers in the countryside and she was, had a lot of contact with the peasants and the farmers and uh, all the old rituals. You know, she actually saw uh, farmers kissing the ground in the morning to, you know, to say good morning to Mother Earth and that kind of thing. This was all still going on in the 20th century. Wow. And so one of the things the archaeologists have always held against her is they, they say it just can't be, you know, that the current uh, ritual life of, of the, especially Eastern European countries, but all of Europe, that the, the rural uh, customs mm-hmm. can't be related to what was happening 9,000 years ago, but hello, they are. And that's yeah. a lot of what Gimbutas was doing is to show that extreme continuity of the motifs and the rituals and the symbols and all of that. And, and she was very skillful and knowledgeable about uh, the folk art and the folk religion and the folk songs and all of that. She collected folk songs as a young woman and had, you know, something like a thousand different or thousands of different songs. So bringing all of that to bear on the discipline of archaeology kind of went against the grain and they, they called her intuitive and they said she was just making it up. And, um, you know, it was, it was really unfortunate. And after she died, they just stopped using her work at all. They wow. actually, she was just gone, and that was that. Um, Vicky, what was their chief argument that it can't have been continuous for nine thousand years? I mean, what's that based on? What is? Is there any other archaeological, other archaeological analogies where there wasn't the case that there's the continuity over that time frame? Because I can think of a couple where there certainly seems to have been. So why the argument that? In this particular instance, there couldn't have been continuity. Well, there, there's no other culture so ancient and so highly evolved that had a, a system of writing of some kind and, and sim, a symbolic life that was so uh, expressed. So, it, you know, the old European culture is, and even earlier, the um, what I think of as old European, but it's not really, it's the what happened in Greece mm-hmm. prior to them uh, traveling from Greece up to the Danube and really establishing the old European culture per se. But um, all of that was goddess culture. Her, so the, the digs that she did in, in Greece and Macedonia and um, a little bit in Italy, they were, uh, they were so early, you know, they were from the seventh millennium and then the sixth millennium and then the old European culture starts in the sixth millennium and, and goes to the middle of the fifth and even farther. So anyway, that's- but, but they, they thought that just the expanse of time is just not like, that's their argument. Their chief argument was the expanse of time was too great 
Yeah, they just said it's, it's impossible, that she's just <laughs> looking at things. You know, you can't say that what the peasants are doing in Lithuania in the 20th century has anything to do with what they were doing back then. But, you know, because we know so much now about women's culture and about the embroideries and the uh, ritual dances and all of the all of what we call the folk life is really the women, the old ancient Anatolian farmer women who came and made old Europe, they lived on even after the Indo-European invasions. And so their, their arts and crafts, you might want to say, lived mm-hmm. on with them. And the mythology, whatever kind of mythology or cosmology went with that, came down through the centuries and through the millennia. And it's still, you can still see it in the tea towels. You know, you can see it in the goddess embroideries and the, and the folk dances and the folk songs and the poetry and so on that's coming out of Romania and Bulgaria and so on. So this, well, they don't mm-hmm. know that because they're, they're specialists. Right. You know, right. They're not interdisciplinary. Sorry. <laughs> they're not <laughs> interdisciplinary enough to uh, really accept that kind of broad uh, view. To even see those connections. To yeah. even see it, exactly. Yeah. And therefore, it has to be impossible. And so I think what, what really is important with her is to know that she was using so many disciplines, and, she, and that's how she, she brought all of that into her discipline of archaeomythology. She used all of those different approaches and, and very skillfully. And, and what she said and what she pointed to is this underground stream of continuity and memory. And some of the people who have taken up her work since then, who are in archaeomythology, have, uh, have sort of tracked some of the movements, like the script died out immediately, uh, but then it kind of shows up later uh, in Crete, and as the alphabet is being designed in Cyprus, and I forget where else, but uh, and then it, and then it comes. We see it come back up from underground. So that there are many ways that that shows. Um, she said, the goddess's religion went underground. Some of the old traditions, particularly those connected with birth death and earth fertility rituals have continued to this day without much change in some regions. In others, they were assimilated into Indo-European ideology. Mm. Um, But, you know, the language of the goddess, the script found in Old Europe, um, has not been deciphered and may never be deciphered because uh, there's no Rosetta Stone. There's nothing to compare it with. Well, let's let's hope let's hope that's not the case. It's actually a good place to ask you two questions, two points that if you could follow up on a little bit. Uh-huh. One, you've talked about the script, which we can come back to, um, and just the significance of it. But you had mentioned that these traditions had endured past the Indo-European invasions. It's probably a good point to just kind of maybe underline what those invasions were, what happened, what exactly was that clash. And, yes, we've, uh, we've talked how about it echoes. This. We've talked about this before, and it's uh, part of the great gift that Gimbutas left uh, is her Kurgan theory. She had very carefully 
documented the three waves of Indo-European invasion into Old Europe. Uh, and, and the archaeologists were especially reluctant to accept any of that. They just wanted to, they went into a lot of denial about there not having been any invasions. So they found other ways of talking about what happened, like the places were burned down, you know, and they were burned down again and again. So then they decided that this big uh, paradigm now that's very popular about how uh, people burn down their <laughs> their own homes. Their own. Yeah. Because yeah. who doesn't, but Vicki, who doesn't do that? Who doesn't want to just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I like my place, but let's burn it down and let's build a new one. Let's and burn so- the place down, you know, travel a few, you know, hundred miles or so and, and start all over again just for fun. No, but it's even worse than that. They didn't go anywhere. When we're talking about the tells, remember okay. we t- Tells they the tell that I saw the Karanov Hotel in Bulgaria. You know, it was fifty feet high from right. all the levels. So they actually built on top of the old. It's it's mud and uh, brick. I get mud and straw. It has a name that I'm blanking on. But there's a way of building that was just uh, kind of you could recycle it. You know, after a while. Ah, and okay. so I'm sure they did some of that, but. But now they're saying that they burned them down. And so the, the only time anybody anybody's house is burned down, as far as I can tell, is when there was an invasion. So now that we have all the DNA evidence showing that, yes, there were invasions, they actually wiped out the old European men. So, yeah, uh, yeah there were invasions. And now the archaeologists in the latest, uh, some of the latest work they've done, I, I'm noticing that they have to talk about it. They've found some places where there were massacres and there are skeletons, you know, to show it. Mm. And so they, they're they coming to understand that, but it's what, it's been 25, 30 years since Buddha's said all that. And, uh, and, and they're having to, uh, you know, they're having to deal with some of it, but... But it's it's but it's always mind-boggling. We've talked about it on different episodes. It's the the Swiss Army knife instead of Occam's razor. It's like they find any number of ways to just explain things away that in any other circumstance wouldn't make any sense to them. I mean, they're yeah. looking not for the simplest solution. I mean, I don't know how the simplest solution to anything would be that people would burn their own homes down. Oh, and, uh, it, gets, and it gets much more contrived. Sure. I mean, we've seen it with the warrior women stuff and Dawn and I talk about it all the time where it's pretty obvious that someone buried with a number of weapons and shields and all the same trappings of any other warrior would clearly be the person who owned those particular items. But somehow they explained them the ways their boyfriend gave them to them and they went on a date and got some extra swords or whatever. There's always some strange reason they can come up with. And so this just sounds like it's right in line with it. Oh, and it just goes to such extremes because, you know, in the 1990s, she died in 94. And in the 1990s, especially uh, toward the later part of that decade, uh, postmodernism, you know, became so popular in the academy. They just went crazy and everything mm-hmm. became everything and nothing was very rooted in evidence. And the the postmodernism actually in colonizing the academy colonized archaeology 
And yeah. as that began to happen, now I think it's just a full conquest. I mean, postmodernism is in and anything earlier is out, even though for a good hundred years or more, there, there was so much shared understanding about the ancient uh, religion and cultures of the great mother or the great goddess all around the world. You know, Gimbutas focused on old Europe, but uh, other people have focused in many places. And people like uh, Bachofen and Briefold, the some of the Victorian uh, writers uh, who were doing ethnography and anthropology, they, they just had so much information, so much evidence. And what they didn't have, I think I might have said this earlier, they didn't have the carbon dating. Right. So, Maria Gimbutas had access uh, in her time to carbon dating, and all the dating became much more precise. And then mm-hmm. we had a much better understanding of the actual story of what came first and what came later and so on. But what's happening now is has gone way beyond any of that because it's like, for instance, in uh, 2011, I think it was, uh, Ian Hodder is the the in charge of the new archaeology that they're doing at the site of Shadowhuyu. We've talked about this in earlier podcasts, mm-hmm. um, and they've you know Mellart uh, excavated Shadowhuyu in the '60s, I think, and he you know he saw a goddess everywhere, and the all the everything supported um, the religion of the great mother it it was so obvious to him and it was part of this ancient tradition and in turkey they certainly feel that way and they love the anatolian great mother and and the museums tell the truth about the exhibition materials the artifacts but but what they're doing at at shadowhuyuk now is telling a new story rewriting it and telling an entirely new story and in, in i found this piece that Ian Hodder and Lynn Meskel, who's a anti, she's a, a feminist gender specialist in the academy and very anti the goddess huh. and, and goddess archaeology and so on. And the two of them together started writing about Neolithic phallocentrism. They they okay. argue that. Middle Eastern early agriculturalist symbolism was concerned with the penis and that human and animal depictions were linked to phallocentrism. They used the term phallocentrism in reference to what they call the privileging of maleness as a prime cultural signifier and the centrality of masculinity as a source of power and authority. Now, this this would be so shocking to Mellart, you know, I, 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 and so shocking well, to Gimbutas. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but Vicki, where does this come? I mean, when I hear this, particularly if someone who's, uh, you say, refers to herself as a feminist gender scholar, what is this based on? We've, you've talked about over various different episodes the, the amount of evidence, archaeological evidence, historical context, linguistic yeah. evidence that's there that has for over a century, uh, probably a century and a half at this point, pointed towards this goddess-centric culture. One, where, what's their argument? And two, why does it exist? Because this might be a good point. I mean, this, the episode, the series we're starting 
his war against the goddess. This might be a good place for you not only to address that, but to address exactly what's happening now in terms of this flip, this Yes, this well, that's the, that's the postmodernism, you see, because now what they say, there was a whole, an understanding of uh, the similarities of all the goddess figurines, the female figurines, let's say, that had been found all over Eurasia, Afro-Eurasia. I mean, really a huge space and time. And um, everybody understood a certain, uh, this, a certain uh, look to the figurines, most of whom looked like what they call fertility goddesses, you know, with big buttocks and big breasts and so on, but not all. Uh, and so now what they're saying, these postmodern archaeologists, they're saying, well, you know, just because a figurine has breasts doesn't mean it's female. That's one thing. I think that's really shocking. And then, Because if it quacks, it doesn't necessarily have to be a duck. I get it. Yeah. And they, and they have now categorized a lot of the figurines as uh, being um, neuter or neutral. And not, and, or, or you know, sexless. Sometimes they say, and and the thing we did with this so-called phallocentrism, it was just so bizarre because there were what you know, a hundred thousand female figurines in old Europe and ten male figurines, or something like that. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but they say now that bulls were preferentially selected for use in feasts and ceremonies. And this presumably, this is another writer writing about this work, this presumably reflects the masculinity, power, and phallocentrism inherent in their society. The apparent patterning, however, this author says, can be explained in much simpler ways because almost all animal herding practices involve disproportionate killing off of males as opposed to females. That has to do with the female's uh, being needed to have more babies and also being needed for dairy. Yeah, uh, exactly. And the males are not. This is true with goats as well. It's probably true with all of the male uh, animals that were um, herded. Uh, the, the males are then uh, sacrificed to feasting. So all of their ceremonies and their feasts, uh, their ceremonies involve feasts and the feasts involved meat. And that those were the times of year when they ate meat. You know, they didn't eat meat every day like we do. Mm-hmm. So um, it's so it's so, so obvious that this author says it's just not clear that this is actually the case. But then it gets worse. So now in 2017, a big book from Oxford Press has been published. It's called the Oxford Handbook of prehistoric figurines. So you oh, get dear. this is the this is the elite version of right. what you're supposed to think about the figurines nowadays. And here's the kind of thing they this is this is a guy named Richard Lesher. He's at UCLA where Maria Gimbutas had her archaeomythology department. Um, he says indeed there he 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 first you know, he accuses her of having a grand history uh, and, and being so overblown. And then he says, there, indeed, there is a need for a grand history. He says, the goddess refuses to die. The perception 
among analysts is that she lives on despite one mortal wound after another because they've been trying to kill her for so long. Yeah. The response is to brandish the weapon of context, he says, with ever greater exasperation. Context is what they're using now in what they call contextual archaeology. And basically they say you can't you can't say that just because there are all these figurines all over the world that look so much the same and are all women and have you know something to do with a culture that was led in some way by women. You can't say that because uh, so he says we have to bring a different uh, weapon. Um, he says he says why the goddess staggers on among Neolithic figurines there is a systematic patterning at a very large scale, at the scale indeed at which the goddess construct was formulated. So this, of course, is referring to Gimbutas's work. At uh, interpreters who perpetuate the goddess construct, like me, <laughs> do so because they sense these larger coherences. We should thus stop stabbing the goddess with the dagger of context. That is never going to kill her off. She will only fade away for good when we devise an alternative grand history that accounts for large-scale coherences. The task is far beyond the capacities of any single scholar, which I think is quite interesting since it was Gimbutas as a single scholar. Right, right. <laughs> who was able to create the goddess construct. Right. Uh, we need, we need the, thus need to legitimate a category of research at that scale, open to lively comparison in which multiple investigators can incrementally contribute to the creation of a new synthesis. Isn't that Vicky, amazing? Yes. Breath can we stop? Can we stop there for a second, Vicki and, yes. and Dawn? I, I just... One, because the my blood is boiling, but um, uh, first of all, there's a number of issues that I, you know, I'm not expecting us to answer it right here, but I think we need to put it out for listeners to hear about and address, because I'm hearing something that doesn't have an analytical construct. I'm hearing arguments from scholars that aren't based on an argument of saying, we find facts, based on these facts, we make hypotheses and link them together to make theories, but rather, we simply do not like what seems to be the best theoretical construct or reasonable theoretical construct that is held up, meaning the goddess, meaning matriarchal female-centric civilizations. So we need to create what sounds to me like alternative facts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my God. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. it, it is amazing to me that because the argument is typically made when you talk about matriarchal or feminist issues that these are all touchy-feely things. These are all these feminine, quote-unquote, like you say, intuitive, touchy-feely, not based on any reason, the power of the great power of reason and logic. But whereas what I'm hearing from when we talk about old Europe and the matriarchies are really grounded and predicated on, again, Archaeological evidence, historical context, strong argument, reasonable hypotheses, as opposed to what seems to simply be an ideological need to destroy or kill the goddess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in here because one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit was um, 
you mentioned, uh, Vicky, you mentioned uh, Maria Gambutis's interdisciplinary approach to archaeology. And one of the things that I'm seeing in um, science and also in business right now, as we're having this, you know, giant sort of moment of reckoning in our society about, uh, about the way we look at things, is that science that that teams and interdisciplinary approaches actually work work much better to solve problems that if you combine disciplines you know someone who's been doing something one way for decades and has specialized in that thing gets really tunnel visioned and if you have someone from another discipline that comes in to work on the problem with them they are the ones that can say you know we look at it this way instead, and that you have breakthroughs in research when you have this kind of interdisciplinary approach. It's happening in business as well. You know, that that companies with boards that are made up of people from different backgrounds, uh, different races, different genders, different ethnicities, that they can create a much better product because you have people who are looking at it from all different angles. And so yeah, the thing that you create is, is, is better for everyone. The synergy of it is, more yes. of course. Yeah. And, you know, that's a perfect segue to old Europe and any matriarchal co- uh, community or even the living matriarchal cultures that we know about today. You know, they, they do everything uh, in a collective way. They have a consensus process of decision making. They don't have heroes and, you know, individualists the way that we have gone so far in our culture with everybody wants to be totally individual now. And we're like atoms. We're so atomized. We're so separated from nature and from each other. And so the creativity of uh, working together, collaborating in any way, collaborating with nature. That's what mm-hmm. the old Europeans were doing. Right, Their right. Agriculture was sustainable because they were collaborating with all beings while they were doing it, you know, so they weren't right. harming anyone and it wasn't abstracted the way so many of these specialization seems so abstracted from reality and postmodernism, I think probably most of all. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. As Sean was saying earlier, that's the other point I wanted to mention is that, you know, it's just not good science to say we have all this evidence that supports this one theory, but I don't like that theory. So I'm going to come up with a hypothesis and I'm going to create the hypothesis first and then put out a call for people to give me evidence that would support it so yeah. that we can, you know, we can make everybody believe this alternative facts hypothesis that actually isn't based in the evidence that we have. Right. In fact, it's a counter to it. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to create something that is as compelling as the goddess construct, as they call it. Right, quote unquote construct. Yeah, construct. Yeah. And the thing is, um, you know, she she was so interdisciplinary and it was so uh, patterny, patterned. Uh, she saw so many patterns and her whole, uh, the language of the goddess is all about the patterns that she saw in the script and right. in the script signs that were on the bodies of the figurines and so on. 
Um, but also, I I do I do see that they're responding to something real in the sense that she said, for instance, they say it, the goddess won't die; they just can't get it to die. And yeah. and she said the old European culture was the matrix of much later beliefs and practices. Memories mm. of the long-lasting gynocentric past could not be erased. And it is not surprising that the feminine principle plays a formidable role in the subconscious dream and fantasy world. <coughs> to be, she says, it remains. Oh, I'm so sorry. Hang on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it remains in Jungian terminology, the repository of human experience. The, the unconscious she's talking about, and the depth structure. To an archaeologist, she says, it's an extensively documented historical reality. Mm. So she's, she's talking about it's not, it's not just a mythology, you know. <clears throat> yeah, that, that people who are not archaeologists or archaeomythologists, they, they sense it to be true because it has... It, you know, the feminine principle has remained in our subconscious so powerfully yes, yes. because it is a function of being human, frankly. Yeah. And so even though we don't have the, you know, the general populace doesn't have the archaeological proof that this is true, they still sense it to be true. And that the two, in her view, the two are in agreement with one another. Absolutely. And, you know, I took uh, women on uh, tours to goddess sites for a decade in the 90s and uh, in the early 2000s. And our tours to goddess sites were were revelatory Mm. because it wasn't just the archaeology that we were looking at. It was also we were in the country, you know, where real living people are still practicing the rituals and some of the uh, practices uh, in terms of the pottery and the weaving and the embroideries and so on. And I saw old, I saw an old woman praying at uh, a sacred tree in, in a courtyard in a, in a, in a temple in Greece. Wow. Um, And I saw, uh, I saw old women in Italy at the cemetery conversing with their dead partners or, or whoever they, whoever's grave they were at, you know, but it was probably the husband. Um, and, and they're talking out loud to their loved ones, you know, they're interacting with the spirit world in a way that we think is somehow bizarre or insane or, Um, or evil. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that you're speaking with, with demons or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just these old women in their black dresses, you know, and they're they're talking away. It was it was astonishing to me because we, well, for one thing, in Western culture, our death practices are so bizarre. Yes, you yes, know, they we, are. We deny death to to the last degree, and they they aren't doing that in the more rural places and the places that are more linked to these ancient uh, egalitarian, peaceful cultures, you know, with their goddess imagery. And their understanding of the regenerative cycle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was that was Maria Gimbutas's main 
mantra, you know, was that the goddess wasn't uh, one thing. She wasn't a fertility mother, you know, she was that and a death goddess and she was regenerative and yeah. that, and that we, we don't even know what that means in Western culture anymore. You know, what's that? Well, regenerative. You know what's regenerative? Women's periods. Mm. Women regenerate themselves once a month through yeah. the menstrual cycle for most of their adult lives, you know? Yeah. And that's what she was talking about, things like that. And the cyclic time, how, how the ancient people and the living indigenous people today who are more earth-based and not urbanized, they also keep the sacred cycle of, of holidays that we call the goddess holidays, but that they uh, observe as well. The Tibetans observe them as well. You know, it's everybody in the world was in, living in cyclic time until very recently. And yeah. some people still are. <laughs> you know, I know this is a bit of a, a tangent, but but the idea of our society not having an understanding of the regenerative part of that cycle of birth, death, regeneration really bears out in a lot of the ways that our society, in a lot of our, our failings, you know, that we don't we don't want to leave time for regeneration. So, right. you know, as soon as our electronic devices, batteries are out, we want them to be charged instantly. We don't want to give them time to regenerate. Well, we don't we, even want to sleep. I've heard people say, yeah. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah you'll be dead soon if you don't. <laughs> if you don't sleep. We take from the earth. We take resources yes. from the earth. Yes. And, and we, we don't have any plans to leave time for the earth to regenerate in any way. We want it to provide resources for us continually all the time. And, and, and I think so many of the, I mean, if you want to switch to the fossil fuels and the mining industry mm. and so on, and even the lumber industries, you know, they don't really care when they when they're told that it's finite resources. They don't care. Yeah. They just go after them more. They yeah. want to get every last tree, every last piece of gold or silver or whatever it is, so silica. What goes into the, yeah. the computers? You know, whatever it is, they just want to. They just want to get it all. They want to use it all up as quickly as they can. Exactly. Rather than having a plan that will allow for the continuous use of resources by giving this fallow period of regeneration by introducing that back into our cycle. Yes. So it's, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's a really is a pervasive way of looking at life and the world and our activities in it. Yes. And, and we can, I mean, it's a perfect thing to talk about because it started 5,000 years ago, when the first Indo-Europeans came into old Europe and ravished the place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. It's, they've been doing it ever since. And, you know, all of the ecological, environmental impacts of uh, agriculture started with the patriarchal people who came in and started to do farming differently. This was in Mesopotamia as well as uh, in Europe. And they started to ravage the landscape. 
you know, take every tree clear cut instead of, right. uh, in, instead of, instead of taking a little, take what you need and leave the rest. You know, herbalists say it when they're harvesting, when they're wild crafting their herbs, mm-hmm. that you always, always leave the the mother plant you know you take a little but you don't take the whole thing right because then you're cutting off the possibility for that plant to regenerate and you know provide provide more yeah yeah and to be sustainable right the thing that i always you know uh go back to with the old european culture is that they were sustainable for so long much longer than any of us have ever experienced or that we know about in any historical empire or urbanized society you know they're not sustainable and they they only last uh at best you know a few hundred years and we're talking about cultures that lasted in their basic makeup an approach to life lasted for thousands of years. Right. And yeah. each of these places, uh, like old Europe or like the the in, in Ukraine, you know, they lasted for like 1500 years. I mean, we and, don't know anything about that. Yeah. yeah. And, and more recently on our own continent, you know, the Native American population, the indigenous population had a similar relationship to the land. Absolutely. And they lasted for, you know, we don't we don't know how long. And then, you know, here comes our Europeans and we yeah. start clear cutting and, you know, farming in ways that strip the soil, yes. that extract nutrients from the soil rather than that work with the soil. So exactly. And, you know, there's a wonderful book that uh really spoke to the core of this problem and solution. It was uh, Jerry Mander's book. Uh, it came out, I believe, in the 80s. It was called uh, In the Absence of the Sacred. Ooh. And one of the things that's very memorable for me about that book, I love the whole book. It was beautifully done. But the uh, his point at one place was talking about how uh, Native Americans you know, Native Americans, like other indigenous people around the planet, are often accused of being kind of behind the times, you know, right? like they're backward and they're not getting with the program, you know, they're not getting with progress. And he he talked about how they have no interest in getting with the program. You know, the Native American people that he was talking to were were hoping to outweigh us. Mm, (laughs) I love it. You and, love it. And yeah. also, and also, native people had a totally different tradition. So when people are saying indigenous Americans, Native Americans were behind the time with certain things, I simply say, look at the record. There are just a different way of doing things that um, you can see, and we're uncovering as the years go on. We're uncovering more and more things, even in the regions that we're seeing now in the Amazon. So just a yeah. different way of interacting with nature and that some aspects of life in the Amazon have been sort of have clearly been developed along with people who were there. I know we're going a little bit, a little bit awry, but I, I do love yeah, the idea I that just we would... are, you know, we're, we're the thing that I think taking from this episode and particularly Vicki, what you're bringing up is there is this continual clash between what the Indo-European mindset of the invaders were like and sort of the old Europe matriarchy. And we seem to play that out a lot of different ways, particularly as we're seeing 
even in the intellectual arena, the scholarly arena of what we see versus what someone wishes to impose. Yes. yes. And how much of it has to do in the intellectual realm, in the academic realm, let's say, how much of it has to do with careerism and individual careers at stake and oh the fact mm-hmm. that they were very uh, jealous of, and still are, of, they talk about Maria Gimbutas uh, that as if she was kind of a queen, you know, that she had such a big following and how, how in, in some way that's, uh, that's a bad thing and, and a negative. Uh, but she was much loved by anybody in the women's movement, certainly who loves the goddess or who w- wishes to be in a non-warlike state instead yeah. of in a patriarchal state. Yeah, we're, it's like we're repeating the invasions. And even, even what you were just saying uh, about the um, Europeans coming in, you know, the Native Americans were sustainable mm-hmm. for a very long time, thousands of years. Yeah. And, then, and then the invaders came. And, right. uh, you know, there's a kind of rapaciousness in patriarchy that plays out in every venue, in every region in every uh in every place uh yes that error again just saying oh no worries that this is uh i think this is probably the best place to stop well let me let me do you want if something jump yeah i just want to put a couple tags on that um Mm -hmm. uh just a thought about our you know the conversation we were having before about the attitude towards the land and the attitude towards indigenous peoples as being somehow primitives who can't get with the program one of the wonderful quotes that i heard when i was um, taking my permaculture course is that you cannot look at other cultures as failed attempts to be americans (laughs) <laughs> right good because yeah. we are destroying ourselves right and planet so what you know what are we thinking yeah that- our way of life ain't so great in many ways and we need to stop looking at other paradigms yeah. Yeah. as you know faulty attempts to be us and then the other thing that i wanted to point out real quick before we before we close is you know this this patriarchal rapacious mentality is even present in that little snippet you read from um, from the call for you know an alternate theory. I mean, look at the language that he uses. Yes. The goddess won't die. We won't have to die, kill right. her. We're mm-hmm. stabbing her over and over again, and she won't die. It's like, right. wow, right. could you use more Indo-European language? Right. And the other thing about the the whole purpose of all of our podcasts and why we're even interested in this matriarchal work at all is that we are not going to sustain as a planet. We're not going to sustain our life here on the planet if we don't make a shift that includes using the the Native American wisdom or all of the indigenous wisdom as a model. I mean, it's not only that we don't find them primitive, but that their their primitivism, whatever that is, is actually the only possible direction we can go at this point and have any chance that we're going to survive what we've all the destruction we've already done to the climate 
and to, right. to the planet in general. So, you know, it's our only hope. Matriarch and it, isn't an idea. <laughs> right, right. It's a plan. It's a and <laughs> it's a solution. And maybe the reason why, you know, these traditions and cultures that the established archaeology says, you know, can't possibly have survived for 9,000 years. Maybe the reason they survived for 9,000 years is because they're actually the only way to do things that will keep us alive on this planet. Yeah, I agree. All right. And with that, I want to thank, first of all, thank all the listeners, but thank you, Vicki Noble, for Absolutely. giving us such a, here's applause, applause. Um, <laughs> we will definitely continue. This is the first in series and a very powerful opening to that series. And of course, thank you to Dawn Sam Alden. And thank you, insights. Sean Marlon Newcomb. Right. <laughs> what a team. <laughs> and thank you all for listening this has been the 34 Circe Salon make matriarchy great again the war against the goddess we will be back with more thank you all take care everyone and blessed yes. be yes blessed be <laughs> <laughs>